just now when we made the decision to record the intro and outro without him because he was taking yeah. too long. I texted, we're just going to record. Sorry, bruh, we got this. And then I was like, wait a second. I just texted that to my mom. And like, <laughs> the reason this is doubly funny is because last weekend, last weekend, last weekend, I was trying to FaceTime my mom, but I FaceTimed Adam instead. What? How is this even happening? I don't know. It feels it feels Freudian. Are you oh, my mother? Oh boy. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's be clear, this is all making it in today. Everything before everything that we have been talking about before we oh. quote, officially started recording is making it into the show. Nope, it isn't. <laughs> Producer wins. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage, and I'm joined, as always, by you like that joke, Selvi? <laughs> oh dumb. man, you are cracking joke after joke after joke it's, today. It's just a joke when you make a pause. You just make a little pause. You just does it? Oh, are you teaching me about comedic timing? Oh, comedic timing. Nice. Yes, that's oh, what it's called. Okay, that's okay. it. Okay. All that's right, it. Sylvie. Thank you for being here, Sylvie, producer extraordinaire, co-host of Talking Too Loud. So excited to be chatting with you, as always. So, so excited to be learning about comedy. Learning about from comedy. From the man, the myth, the legend. That's what we're here to do on this business podcast. <laughs> In addition to Talking Too Loud, what's got you talking too loud, my friend? Oh, you know, um, let's see. A few things this week. I I have been re-watching all of Arrested Development. Hey, now. And it holds up. There's money in the banana stand. There's money in the banana stand. Uh, <laughs> I've made a terrible mistake. Um, and <laughs> I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and that's why you always that, You know what's funny? That's know. the only thing that I keep doing with my kids. I just keep saying like, and that's why... You sit down in the back of the car and they're like, Dad, what are you talking about? So he's like, Daddy, what are you ta- what are you doing? I'm like, I just it's it's so funny. But yes, it holds up. It's ridiculous. Um and then also, you know, I love gadgets and toys. Oh, you love gadgets and toys. I am very excited about my brand new Lumi keyboard. Look at this thing. Uh-oh. Can you see this? Listeners, I wish you could see this. It is like I'm looking at uh, what do you call it? Lightsabers on a screen. It's like Guitar Hero on a piano to learn to play piano. It's this little okay. keyboard that um, you know you can like use with your iPad or whatever, and like it teaches you songs. And I thought it'd be really fun. I got it for the kids, and I was like, I think I should just probably like you know figure this out myself. <laughs> Yesterday, two hours just like playing piano like late into the night, just like having the best time. And it's funny because what, like, what are you playing though? Are you like are you Beethovening over there? Are you like well, that, was, that was summer by Calvin Harris, but I, I can tell you what I've been playing. Um, let's see. Uh, we played a little Beatles. Um, nice. Played some Ace of Bass. Ooh. All that she wants. All that she um, wants. Yeah. Beatles another baby. Uh, <laughs> can't stop this baseball. feeling. Justin Timberlake. Great one. But you know what's really fun wow. about it is like you hook it up and you're listening in your headphones. And I've played guitar for a long time. But I've only ever played guitar with other people like mm. a couple times in my life, especially if it's like a band. Like I can think of two times in my life that I was like with a band 
And I was not very good, but it felt like so good because you're like a part of it. You're screwing up. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And the thing that's fun about this is it plays like all the ensemble music with uh, you while you're playing it. I got to get me one of these. Yes. This is my dream. Yes. So I'm like playing songs I have no right to play. I'm t- yeah. like the songs I just listed. Terrible. I'm terrible. But yeah. because the ensemble is there, I'm like, yeah, I'm crushing this. Killing this is it. so fun. My kids literally like, Daddy, can we try this? I'm like, Daddy's not done yet. Once, once Daddy's done, then you can do it. You're like, and that's why. <laughs> and that's why Dad is playing with a light-up piano. So speaking of cool dads, our guest today, Brent Grinna. Cool dad. Pretty cool dad. Definitely cooler than me. Um, so Brent is the founder and CEO of Evertrue, which is a SaaS business that supports fundraising efforts at educational institutions and nonprofits. He's been doing it for over 10 years, built like a really amazing company, he also went to Brown, as did I. Um, and although he was kind of like running in a little bit of a different crowd, he's different. the varsity captain of the football team. So no yeah, big deal. He had the Letterman jacket and everything. Yeah. Do you get Letterman jackets in, in college? Do uh, no, do that? I don't think so. That's just high but school? But who do I know? Yeah, <laughs> I that's, know. <laughs> that's just high school. Um, but really excited to have Brent on the show today. Brent, you know, ran Evertrue as an in-person business. They went fully remote, of course, because of the pandemic. But he actually went a little wild, bought an RV, traveled across the country with his wife and three kids for over 10 months. Um, so really leaned in hard to um, oh, yeah. the flexible work life. And so really excited to have him come on and talk about that and challenges of scaling and all that kind of stuff. Um, he's just such a thoughtful, smart, nice guy. Uh, one of the nicest guys out there. So excited to have him on the show this day. Amazing. Let's do it. Hey, Brent. What's up, man? How are you? Chris, greetings from Rhode Island. Greetings from Rhode Island as well. Look at us. Two of us just stuck in the smallest state, although you only for a brief period of time before you hit the road again. Hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm super excited to have you on the show. As you know, it's called Talking Too Loud. And the reason is because, as you know me, whenever I get excited, I cannot help myself. Uh, the volume of my voice just gets out of control. Like this week, for example, extremely excited because I've been rewatching all of Arrested Development. Turns out, still extremely funny. I also got uh, this little thing called the Lumi Key thing, which is this light up keyboard to like learn to play piano, which has been <laughs> super fun. Um, and I won't shut up about these things. Um, but what I'm wondering is, what has you talking too loud, Brent? What's got you excited right now? Well, I am sitting in my motorhome that we have begun to call the Grinnebago. And about a year ago, <laughs> when we were in the middle of lockdown, uh, we were here in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And I looked at my wife and I am the idea guy in the relationship. And she's like the implementer and the executor. And generally uh, her default response to any of my ideas is a hard no. But I looked at her and said, Katie, what if we got an RV and traveled uh, at least to see our family in Iowa? And she said yes immediately. And a week later, we had purchased an RV uh, via FaceTime from a guy up in New Hampshire. Oh, wow. And we loaded our three boys into this RV, the Grinnebago, and just spent uh, 10 months traveling 33 states, 12,000 miles, riding out the pandemic on the road uh, while I worked remotely. So we sort of took remote working to an extreme, but it definitely has shaped my perspective as there are varying um, 
views on what the future of work is and are we going back to the office or things getting back to normal or are we going to yeah. stay in a more perpetually remote um, environment. And, uh, and I say that as I'm sitting in the RV, as we are uh, ready to take our second voyage here, uh, this summer. So that's got me talking pretty loud. And you have three boys, right? Yep. Gunner is seven. Soren is five. Odin is two. And how, how was it having them non? I mean, obviously everyone's been nonstop with their kids, but how was it having them nonstop in the Grinnebago for that long? It was very much, first of all, you know, we're talking about I don't know, 300 square feet of living space for a family of five, but uh, really allowed for some quality free range parenting as we were uh, navigating the country and the pandemic. And so the routine was basically find out our next stop, get there, get the kids out. Everybody sort of had their tasks and then the kids would just go and roam. And so I think for our two oldest boys, it was incredible. I think for our baby who was one and is now two, uh, being three feet away from us at all times, uh, especially as we were trying to get him to sleep through the night, mm. not ideal for us. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Great that for seems him. like a tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My own three-year-old Olympia, uh, went through some phases here where we, we were really seeing no one else. And she, she got so hyper attached that if my wife left the room, she would like just fall and cry. Fortunately, we we're beyond that, but like hit that phase in there. And it's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that us parents have been dealing with that most people have no idea if you're, if you're not a parent, you don't really know the battles that have been going on behind the scenes while people have been call, calling into meetings. Top five battles. What's like the most recurring battles? I don't know if you can call it a battle because we just gave up in that he. <laughs> it was a war you quickly lost. Yeah. yeah. Like lost battle would be trying to sleep train a one-year-old when he's three feet away from you for a year, just not happening. So uh, great feature of the Grinnebago. We got a king size bed back there and it was fully occupied uh, with our little guy almost every <laughs> single day. But as we have settled back into life in a home, uh, that has been a, uh, a great uh, improvement, but are, are you yeah. guys worried that getting back on the road that like some of these like routines that they're going to disappear for sure. So I think, look, our kids finished school today. It's summer break. It's sort of a, a natural transition time. That being said, this is not going to be as long of a trip. We did 10 months, 12,000 miles. This is going to be an aggressive three day trip to Iowa where my wife and I grew up. We're going to set up shop there. Um, we've got a house there and just going to, uh, try not to fully re-embrace RV life this time okay. around. That's good. That's good. And Sylvie, just so you know, other things that were given up during the pandemic, I know a lot of people, myself included, who tried to limit screen time. Bye-bye. Like, <laughs> all limits were gone. Trying to get your kids to eat healthy food. Bye-bye. Like, it's just like, <laughs> oh, can I have candy? Sure. Like, you can have whatever you want. I feel like most routines that parents, like, stress about you just couldn't even consider them. So they were thrown out. And so what will happen when all these kids are back in school and stuff? And like uh, Olympia, my three-year-old, when she's going to nursery in the fall, what will happen? I, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> we actually decided to kind of turn that challenge on its head. We were like, how much screen time can we do in one day? <laughs> like everybody's trying to limit it. What if we yeah. just said, let's max, like how much could they handle? Yeah. In a given 24-hour period. So, What do you think you hit? All waking hours? How many hours were they awake? Yeah, I guess yeah. I'd have to think about that. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, like that was an advantage uh, of being in campgrounds is there's really no 
mobile service or Wi-Fi to speak of. So it, yeah. that is a good natural limiter as well. Yeah, that's nice. Do you recommend this lifestyle to others? Like now, you know, let's, let's stay focused. There's a lot of stuff we want to talk about, hybrid work, future of higher ed, all these things. But like living in the RV for that period of time, like, do you recommend it? Do you think more people should try it? Do you think that they should do it for the summer? What do you think? I think everyone, everyone, I can't say everyone, people should try it. If you've been on the fence or you've thought that might be interesting, it is worth trying. The challenge is there is a learning curve and there have been few more humbling moments than just trying to learn the way around the operations of this thing from like how you turn the batteries on so you don't kill the batteries to the plumbing, which everybody always wants to ask about. And um, <laughs> so there's just like this humble learning curve that is inevitable. But once you get through that, it sort of feels like a superpower. And as we were traveling the country and just getting to see different places, getting to meet different people, uh, it was just so liberating. Now, I, I also acknowledge that I had been in a uh, work mode of a lot of travel prior to the pandemic, air travel. And so it was also this sort of moment of just uninterrupted, um, this uninterrupted period of being grounded that is sort of um, once in a lifetime, I I think, at least at that extreme, hopefully is. And so that was an important part of the decision uh, as well. But if you've been on the fence or you've thought about it, it's it's incredible once you sort of build that that skill. It's funny as you were saying that I was thinking this sounds a lot like describing to somebody what it's like to run a startup. I was almost going to make that uh, comparison as I started down that path, but yeah, I mean the beginning period of just not even knowing what you don't know, having this general vision and idea of what you want to do, and then actually executing on the plan and putting the pieces together. It was a lot like that. When I think about the uh, MVP that we were operating one year ago at this time compared to uh, V2 of the Grinnebago, I'm feeling pretty good about uh, the progression. That's awesome. It's like the confidence you build, figuring out like the systems and you know, it's even funny when you talk about like the ideas guy versus like the executor, like all of these things are just like straight out of you got to know your strengths. You got to you got to build a strong team around you. You got to build a culture of values. And like, you know, in this case, it's unlimited screen time. But, um, you know, it, it, I think it's it's interesting that parallel. And I, I've definitely experienced the same thing. Like I never expected to be home as much. And it was like absolutely the silver lining of the pandemic for me was like spending so much time with the kids and at a moment when they like want to spend time with you. You know, I feel like it's like you can see as they're growing up, like, of course, they're going to want to spend more time with their friends and go off and do these other things. So it feels like very lucky um, to be able to spend that time with them. Um, let's talk about Evertrue. So can you tell the listeners, like, what's Evertrue? What, what are you guys doing? So I started Evertrue in 2010, uh, after serving as a longtime volunteer for our alma mater, Brown University. And go Bruno. Ah. Go Bruno. It was <laughs> wait, go doing what? That work. Go, what go Bruno, saying? go Bruno. Every time someone says Brown University and they also went there alum, you just have to say go Bruno. What is go Bruno? If you know, you know. But I would say uh, <laughs> you're going to have more than enough Brown references by the end of this. But, um, you know, kind of in all seriousness, my 
background is grew up on a farm in Iowa. Neither of my parents had the opportunity to go to college. I was the oldest of three boys. And so going to college was always this really aspirational um, goal, but also an expectation. And I was fortunate to get recruited by Brown to play football, had a life-changing experience coming out to Providence, which I think is where Chris is sitting today. And, um, and really just uh, was blown away by the experience, the friendships, the opportunities that I just didn't even know existed growing up. At the same time, I never could have attended Brown without major financial aid and scholarship. It's all need-based scholarship there. And, and so I don't think I knew what philanthropy or donations really were at that time in my life, but I, I definitely was a beneficiary of it. And following college, I, I worked in the finance world in Chicago and outside of work, I just got super involved as a volunteer and I was planning the Brown Club happy hours and meetups. And when the athletic director would come out, we'd do an event. And uh, and I just loved it. It really was kind of what I did coming out of school. Um, but at the same time, as my uh, volunteer experiences advanced and as our reunion approached, our fifth reunion, I volunteered to help with fundraising for my reunion campaign. And the process that unfolded was super challenging. I mean, basically, I got a spreadsheet from the school's database of who they wanted me to reach out to, my classmates, you know, their information. And this was in 2009, 2010. And it was basically this outdated spreadsheet. And they had all these people listed as, you know, lost alumni, you know, we've lost track of Chris, or we've lost track of Brendan. And uh, these people were on Facebook, they were on LinkedIn, they were on Twitter, like they were not lost, they were more findable than ever before. But it was clear that there was a huge disconnect between uh, the systems that the institution was using, effectively as CRM, and then who we all were in our um, digital and social lives. And um, it was that disconnect that really got me excited to explore because I, I really looked at, on one hand, higher education, $70 billion now is raised every year through donations, which mm. then helps kids like me and my brothers go to college who otherwise couldn't. But it was being done on the backs of legacy systems and infrastructure that was older than I was in some cases. And it just seemed like a really neat opportunity to try to bring a lot of the best of the modern social selling and modern CRM world and apply it to this vertical that had been ignored, but had really made a big impact for me and and many others. And so had that germ of an idea, decided to start the company, named it Ever True after Brown's fight song, which is Ever True to Brown. Did you know that, Chris? Oh, yeah, I knew that. Come on. Come on now. And go Bruno, right? Go Bruno. Go Bruno. Go yeah. Bruno. As Sophie's as in there say. now. <laughs> and so Ever True to Brown plays when the football team scores touchdowns, which I did one time my junior year against Good Dartmouth. Good job, Brian. And, Good job. Um, <laughs> but the name uh, has served us well. And as we sit here 10 years later, we're working with over half of the leading uh, kind of U.S. news and world report uh, institutions, really introducing a new standard for vertical CRM in this space. And what's unique about the alumni and development world relative to other marketing and sales funnels, if you will, is that we all already went to the institution. We made a massive investment. We've got identity and uh, you know inside jokes and phrases and culture that is unique to every institution. So the awareness and the engagement with the brand is inherently much, much greater than another company that is trying to build awareness among Brown alumni or, uh, you know, anybody for that matter, yet 
the marketing and storytelling, I think, game is just very, very behind in this sector. There's a lot in what you just said. I think there's a lot that listeners can take away from this. Like things that jump out to me that are similar in my story are like seeing that opportunity, right? Like coming across the legacy system and recognizing like they're telling me I can't find anybody, but actually they're all right there. Like I'm connecting with them every day. Um, And I think that that's like a very good, it's so simple, but I think it's actually a really good lesson for anyone who wants to start a company is like, look for the disconnects. Look for the disconnects between where people are doing something in an old way and where there's actually a new, much better way. But the other thing that pops to mind is like, you know, we've been doing Wistia for 15 years. You've been doing Evertrue for 11 years. Like this stuff could take a while. No doubt. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like, I feel like I look at my market, I'm like, wow, like the market's grown a lot, but actually it still feels like the early days. And I'm shocked by things that, like how long it's taken that disconnect to get connected. Do you feel the same way? I totally do. And I think one of the biggest things that I continue to appreciate is how important persistence is. And I think as a founder, your personal identity can blend with the company identity. And and I think that's certainly the case for Wistia. And I feel that way at Evertrue. And so maintaining just the energy and the enthusiasm for the same problem year after year now, you know, over a decade for both of us is so hard, but also so important because if you can, you just learn and you get better. And when I think about even the way I described the disconnect and the problem identification at Evertrue, that was how I talked about it then. But I knew nothing about the industry. I knew nothing about how it actually worked. I had this narrow lens as a you know passionate rah-rah volunteer guy, but I didn't really understand the business of fundraising. And actually, I feel like right now I'm still kind of just starting to get it, even though it's been um, 11 years. And, and it is... Uh, it is hard, but if you can maintain that persistence, and I look at you as somebody, well, you know, Chris and team have been able to stick with it. And I'm sure that there have been, you know, many challenges uh, and doubts oh, yeah. along the way. I think of <laughs> Art, Art Pappas at Bullhorn, where, you know, he's been doing it for over 20 years and, and Brian yeah. Halligan and, and Darmesh, you know, so there are examples of folks that can get up and get after the same problem every day and, and not get tired of it or um, just want to move on with their lives. And, uh, you know, that's how I feel right now. Yeah. And do you think like, I mean, there's a few things from that, but one is like, I, first of all, I completely agree. I think persistence is the key. Persistence is the key in the early days. It's still the key, right? And then when I think about persistence, I think like, I have to be honest about what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. And I have to be honest about what fulfills me and like actually make sure that I'm fulfilled. And that the, the team around me, there's all these incredibly talented people that they need to be fulfilled as well. And if they are also fulfilled, then it's actually pretty easy to keep going. Do you feel the same way that that's like, um, it's about figuring out how to match you and what you need to the company? Totally. And that changes when you're newly married with no kids and then one kid and two kids and now three kids. And uh, I was talking about this with my brother this weekend the pandemic was terrible in so many ways, but it was this moment to just stop, no matter what you were doing, just stop. And I think especially when I think about my life pre-pandemic, where it was just sort of, every year it was sort of 
these conferences and these trips and which customers, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? How do you manage this? And it was inertia, right? It was just the ball was rolling and then it stopped and having even the ability for a year, in my case, it was to get in an RV and travel around the country with my family. I didn't stop working. I was working like crazy. I was doing podcast recordings in front of a Starbucks because they had decent Wi-Fi. And then I'd go to Target <laughs> and I'd get some Wi-Fi there. And then I'd be at a McDonald's yeah. getting some Wi-Fi. And it was actually sort of an insane way. I, re- I mean, I remember at times I'm like, I'm a CEO of a company recording a podcast in front of a McDonald's because there's no mobile internet service <laughs> in my campground. That's a weird sentence I never thought I'd say. But here I am. And it was actually, I don't know, just super liberating. And it has given me a whole new perspective on how I can work and does my life and my family's life need to be centered around 330 Congress Street just because that's the address of the lease of the company that I happened to start 11 years ago and creating more flexibility there for me has been hugely valuable already and I think for my my colleagues as well. Let's talk about that because I mean I'm it's such a similar boat did a very different thing but um, you know, Wistia and the office was how I centered my life. And let's, and, I mean, let's be clear. You, you all sort of set a standard for what, for I mean, office culture. I remember the first time yeah. I went to your new office. I mean, I, yeah. I remember the first time I went to your first office, I was actually trying to find the, the t-shirt that you gave me that day, which by the way, <laughs> then inspired us to give people t-shirts every time they came to our <laughs> office. But, um, but your new office, um, or probably not consider your new office by your team these days, but oh, it was until our, until our newest office opened during the pandemic with no one in it until then. <laughs> yes, that was our new office. And I'm just saying you all had set a standard for kind of what the aspirational startup office culture experience could be. And, yeah. uh, and, and I know I'm not the only person who was inspired by seeing you all continuing to kind of push the envelope yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's been weird. I mean, it was weird, right? Because like, I was like, I'm so fulfilled. I have so much fun. Every day is amazing. But I also just got in that rhythm of thinking that and whether or not every day was amazing, because the truth of it is like some days are really hard and there's enough days that are amazing or enough days that are, there's really creative things going on or enough days where there's run-ins and magic occurring that it like fulfills you. But it's like, I assumed it was every day. And so then when we first went remote, because we had to, I was missing a lot of the creative energy of being in the space, but some of it we'd figured out a way to get online and we were really productive and I'm spending way more time with my kids and I'm not commuting and I'm not sacrificing in these other ways. And I was like, this never would have occurred to me. Um, and I ended up moving back to Providence, right? And getting more space and being closer to my family. So it's been really interesting and challenging and like just reevaluating what's important, right? Um, and what makes the work move and what makes your life move and how do you match those two things? So where does it settle out a year from now? So for us, it's like, we've tried to devise a system that embraces flexibility. And I think that that's the big unlock for me in all of this is like, you know what? Everyone can be trusted and you should hire people and focus on outcomes. Um, and if you do that, you don't have to be micromanaging them. Not that we were before, but you really don't need to be doing that. Um, but there are a lot of benefits to being in person. And so what we've leaned into is we've, we've architected a system that's basically 
um, the team can can choose what their default way of working will be. And we're going to start doing this. Right now, it's like you can come in the office if you want, but no one has to come back really until next year. Um, but in the fall, we'll have people say what they want their default working to be. And it'll be like, you're in the office, which means you come two to three days a week and you have your own desk and your benefits are centered around commuting and like you're in office workplace. You come in like once a week, in which case your benefits will be more around like your home office and a different type of commuting thing. Or you're someone who's more like a jet setter who comes in, you know, once a quarter or twice a year. And that's how it'll be anchored. And so we want people to be able to pick those things. But then we also realized that there's a lot of stuff that is better in person. Um, things like onboarding new employees, strategic planning. Um, so we're, we're trying to be really clear that you can have control of the flexibility you want, but let's also be upfront and honest about what things we think will be better done in person. But what, are, what do you think it'll be? What are, what are you guys doing? Well, I think the first question or the first part of it is along the lines of what you just said is how do we take this existing team that for the most part was on our team pre-pandemic that had a way of working and personal connections and friendships and all of those things. And how do we kind of re-architect for the future for that team, which is likely a future of more flexibility for everyone, but you still need some predictability as a leader of how much office space do we need and what are yeah. the benefits programs um, that go beyond just to do whatever you want for as long as you want. I think for me, the bigger question or an area that I'm just incredibly excited about is what happens to the future of recruiting. And even this week, mm -hmm. today, I've been interviewing people who I know a year ago, there is almost no chance that they would have been in our candidate pool. And yeah. that has already made a difference from a diversity perspective. I think the inclusion aspect is going to become extra important uh, in a more remote context. But I'm super encouraged about access to talent all over the country. In our case, we haven't explored international yet. Um, and I love the Boston community. And part of the reason we set up, you know, the company in, in Boston is there's a great density of higher education there. There's an unbelievable talent pool, um, both that is passionate and understands our market, but also has built skills at, at great companies in, in the sector. But there's a lot of great people everywhere. And it's not like we were failing to recruit them in the past. We weren't even trying. And as we've begun to try, uh, it's been pretty encouraging what we've seen so far. Yeah, I've seen similar things in that, like, we are talking to candidates. I didn't even realize what's happening. You know, like, we're talking to people. I'm like, wait a second, you're in Michigan? And how do you feel about travel to come in for this? Like, you know, what's kind of like, yeah, it sounds great. I did crazy travel before, but I wouldn't have considered actually having a full-time role. Um, but it's changing the equation on... Well, if everyone is competing for talent, let's say nationally, we're noticing like the speed that you have to act is changing, right? Like for us, we just hired a new VP and, you know, before it probably took us like two months to hire a role and we're like, we can't do it because like everyone's acting too quickly. There's too much competition. So we've like dramatically shortened the hiring cycle. Are you seeing the same thing? Absolutely. I think uh, I was thinking about the other day, it's like the liquidity in the talent market is at an all time high in that even to get to know a company in the past, if you were starting to think about the new opportunity, you might have to schedule the time before work or after work to go over and yeah. get the coffee and then maybe do the happy hour. And that was slow. Now yeah. it's, here's a Zoom link. Could you do it right now? 
Yeah, that's a good point. That's a huge difference and something that like it was never happening before. And then at the same time, how do we make sure that every company doesn't just feel like a different set of Zoom boxes? Mm -hmm. And you all had this such a distinct office experience. We tried doing that as well. But now whether you're a big company or a small company or in an old office park in the suburbs or the coolest space in Cambridge, <laughs> it's all a bunch of Zoom boxes or has been for the last year. So how does that settle out? And maybe it is about those quarterly in-person experiences that are going to be distinctive and what makes these companies really stand out and, and be distinct. Yeah, I think it's more aligning with what employees want, right? I feel like a lot of this is admitting what has been true for a long time, which is like people make decisions based on their values. They want to work in a place that's fulfilling, especially in a place where they can move and get a new job like really easily. Um, and so even, you know, I remember pre-pandemic, we had started to become much more remote friendly. Like I would have described our culture as hybrid, but we were 10% or less that was yeah. remote. We had just hired two or three people. They were the first people we'd ever hired remote first, as opposed to like letting people go remote to retain them. And we were worried, like, oh, do they, this pre-pandemic, do they want to be here? Um, why? And what a lot of them told us was like, well, we want to work at a company where there's a strong in-person culture. Because I, I don't mind traveling once a quarter and coming in. And I've, I like to know my coworkers. That sounds great. Um, and now I think we're going to probably enter a phase of like the people who only want remote, true remote first, don't want to talk to anybody. They want to live out in the middle of nowhere. And they want all their work to be asynchronous. And that's fair. If that's what you want, you should get it. I also wouldn't be surprised if we see people who are like, I just, I just need in person. Like, I just am an extrovert. You know, they're not a geriatric millennial like you and me. And they're... <laughs> and me. Yeah. And you, like all of us, they're like, they're just dying to spend more time with folks. And then there's people who are going to want like that hybrid, that hybrid thing of like flexibility um, where, you know, it's like, yes, I want to get to know people. I want to work on great stuff. I like being in person, but I also like having the flexibility to like, whatever, spend time with my family, travel, live in other places. And it's probably the whole thing is a big spectrum. Well, and I think that's why right now, I mean, I just saw something last week where the number of people looking for new jobs as a percentage of the total labor force, something like 5%, it's whatever measure it was, it's the highest it's ever been. Of course. And I think some of <laughs> this that- is just, I feel like we're living in the moment of extremes. Everything's right. shut down. Everything's horrible. Everything's amazing. Science is incredible. It's all coming back. Oh, now, you know, the highest unemployment. Now it's going to be the most amount of people changing jobs. And I, what will be next? I don't know. Absolutely. But I think some of that is as values have maybe shifted, right? There are people who even on our team were real in-person advocates pre-pandemic that have changed their mind or their, their point of view has evolved on that. Uh, and then there are decisions that companies are making about full remote, hybrid, in-person. And as we sort of realign how the values have shifted and then whatever policies come out, there's just inherent mismatches where now I realize this is not for me anymore the way that it was. Yeah. And that other company that I really have always respected has made choices that align with me. And so it just seems like there needs to be a reset. And frankly, there needs to be some turnover to get uh, people in, in positions that that are best aligned with those maybe evolved values. Did you ever think we'd be dealing with stuff like this? <laughs> no. And it's scary because on one hand, we're, you know, everybody's thinking about how can I, right? During the pandemic, it was how do I 
ensure my team is doing well? You know, how do I make sure I'm being extra empathetic and given everything people were juggling, whether it was health concerns, childcare concerns, getting the job done, hitting the number of concerns, let's be extra empathetic. And part of that was to retain people and help people, you know, stay motivated and grow. And now as there's sort of an unprecedented number of opportunities for everybody on our respective teams to evaluate, uh, how do we think about retaining great people, but also acknowledging if there is a misalignment of how we've evolved and maybe how their values have evolved, no matter what end of the spectrum it has moved to, that we can also acknowledge maybe what was a great mutual fit isn't going forward. And and that's scary, uh, but also exciting because I think it's going to mean that uh, more people have more opportunity that hopefully can have greater mission and and role and comp and lifestyle alignment and and less alignment with where's the office address. Yeah. It seems like in a couple of years as this has settled and everyone's kind of, you know, companies have decided like what their default working way is. What is the thing that's keeping the best people there for them and like keeping them motivated and all that stuff has settled that we'll enter into a period of like more calmness in terms of like back to, you know, let's execute it the way we execute on stuff. Let's differentiate the way that we differentiate. But like we, the, these, hopefully there aren't as many really big open questions up that are so fundamental about how we work, but it's also, I mean, to your point, like it's cool that these questions exist and that we're reevaluating this stuff, right? Like you're yeah. getting back in the RV and going back to Iowa and spending time with your family. I would imagine way more time with your family you know, than you have ever spent before. Um, My and kids like, are going to have a, a sweet corn stand on the side of the road and they're going to be slinging sweet corn. And that's an amazing experience that they never, you know, would have otherwise been able to have. And so I hope that we are entering a golden age of employee happiness and of alignment with mission and culture and role without the constraint of geography. Yeah. Um, but I know getting there is going to be uh, a challenge for sure. But I also think like, it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you're sitting there and you're like, I think we need an RV. And I'm like, okay, let's go do it. And like RVs got sold out last summer, right? Like no one could get one. So you had to make that decision quickly and early. Um, and I imagine that that's driven by, the just running Everture, running a startup, right? Like we're always facing challenges like this. So I guess my question for you is, you and I have the benefit of being able to do these jobs. He's fortunate to do these jobs for like over a decade. What would you tell someone who is who's getting started on a journey? Um, they're getting started with a startup. They're getting started doing something totally new. What would you tell yourself or what would you tell somebody who who was at the beginning based on your experience of like, learning how to navigate these challenges over time? I would say the perceived risk is radically greater than the actual risk, right? When we talk about risk and downside and all of these things, what are we really talking about? Taking the first step and just getting out there, when you become CEO or when you become founder of a company, right? The day before you weren't and it wasn't, and then you make that leap and you are and it is, the relationships you get to build out of the gates are just different. When you hang your own shingle and and go and decide to create something, people want to 
meet you. They want to get together. It's why I wanted to meet you in a certain regard, Chris. It's probably why you were open to getting to know me all those years ago. When you think about that founder connection, advisors, in my case, investors, you just get an opportunity to build relationships, even if you don't succeed at the enterprise. If you do a good job on the relationship building and the network building, that will never get taken away from you. And so even at some of my lowest points on this entrepreneurial journey, I just felt like the downside and the risk was still going to be much greater than if I had taken a less risky path earlier on. And, and so I sort of felt the same way about making the leap with the RV. It's like, what's really the risk here? The, the, the worst case scenario is we sell it in a month or uh, there's something wrong with it. And, and, and uh, we've got to you know, adjust our, our plan or we're really unhappy with it and we've got to adjust our plan. But I'm pretty comfortable adjusting the plan after being uh, in this job for 11 years. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like that's like uh, such a good way. It's like how you think about decisions and risk has changed in that like, well, the worst case is I have an asset like with RVs. Like worst case is I have this thing I'm going to sell. Worst case of me moving to Providence is I move back to where I lived before and loved living. Like it's not like it's at, it's not as scary as it seems, but yeah. it is different than what you were doing. Um, and I feel like we have to make decisions like that all the time. And it's it's like training yourself to realize that failure is fine um, if you if you know how you're going to get out of it. And it sounds like I, I also love your thoughts on the network, right? Like the network lives on. If you go through life being nice and empathetic and trying to learn, it turns out that like you're going to end up better off than you were before. No doubt. And... Uh, for me, the big risk would have been not getting the RV and <laughs> not even trying to have this experience. Now, that was in my case, in my context, my family, our interests. That would have been way riskier than, uh, than, than giving this a shot. Love that. Brent, dude, it's been too long. It was so fun to catch up. Um, also, can't believe that we're in the same state right now and you're about to leave. So I think you should swing by on your way <laughs> out. Can you do that? I can do that. I've got to get the Evertrue wrap on first okay. and the ice cream truck sound system. <laughs> yes, that, that will be exciting. <laughs> hey, thank you all for having me. It's great to see you, Chris. Hey, man. Thanks for being here. Super fun. Can you tell that this guy is so nice? I mean, come so on, nice. Brent, it's like such, such a nice, I mean, thoughtful grown guy. in Iowa. He's as sweet as the sweet corn. Am I right? You know, I, I was waiting. <laughs> oh, you've been, I was you've waiting. been saving that I one. Was. <laughs> I, was, I was like, sweet corn, sweet corn. <laughs> yeah, he's like, says sweet corn. You're like, yes, sweet corn. You write it down in your, in your book. You're like, I'm going to be saying he's as sweet as sweet corn. Later. In my joke book, <laughs> in my podcast joke book. But you know what? I'm impressed that you got in there. Geriatric millennial. <laughs> You got that. In I there. got that in there. Yes. Yes. So for those who don't know, because only the only people who know are Sylvie and I and Silent Adam. Um, yes, we had a brief ready to go for this interview. We had a question. Which he answered. Um, which he answered without having to go into specifics about hybrid workplaces and some research that says that geriatric millennials, particularly well positioned to manage in a hybrid workplace. They are. 
But a geriatric millennial is someone born between 1980 and 1985, which is me and Sylvie and, and Brent. So it's, it's um, it's nice. It's nice to get that in there. It's really a tale of three Jerry's. That's how I'm going to think about this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> tail of three Jerry's. Um, but no, I actually, I thought that, that was a... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I just, there's something about this that's like, I literally was having a conversation the other day. I was like, all right, we're millennials, but like, is my niece a millennial? I know. Like, she has, but she's like totally into like Gen Z stuff. Like, what are what, we? What, what are, are we? Oh, I'm not a cusper. I'm a geriatric yeah. millennial. Yeah. Wow. It's that's... kind of, it's the nicest way to put it, you know? It's the nicest way to put something. Um <laughs> But I did think that that part of the conversation was very interesting um, in terms of like how you're both thinking about the hybrid workplace going forward and how I think you mentioned like at the top flexibility is just going to be really important. Um, And I thought his comment about sort of like how values are realigning both in terms of the employer and the employee was fascinating the whole recruitment conversation that now the talent pool that was just Boston is now national, right? Like that's wild. Do you worry that there are any drawbacks to expediting the hiring process? Yeah. I mean, look, I think um, that is a good concern. uh, But a, a lot of the reasons why hiring processes take a long time is either because like, at least in our experience at Wistia, um, we weren't clear enough about the roles that people needed to play in interviewing. And like everyone isn't holistically interviewing everyone in every interview. Clearing people's schedules. There's like stuff like that that slows it down. But then I think a lot of times when a hiring process is drawn out, it's actually risk mitigation. You're trying to understand, can I can I remove risk from the hiring process by understanding something else so that when they come here, their likelihood of success goes up. Mm-hmm. And the fear is like, if you go too quickly, you can't do that. I think one of the other things that we don't talk about that much is that, of course, not everyone will work out anyway. That's normal. Right. Like, so I think the other side of it is that you can be faster. You can make a hiring process faster. We've done it. Everyone is going to have to do it. You have to make it faster on the other side, too, of like saying, like, if it's not working um, and that you have to admit you can't remove all risk in hiring and some of it will be removed through the actual doing of the work. Um and I think that's actually really important because, you know, if you hire someone and they're not a cultural match and the way that they work is like really different than how other people work or something, right. the longer you let that live on, the more of a signal you're sending um, that that's acceptable workplace behavior or whatever. And so um, it is actually really important to act really quickly there anyway. So it isn't a huge downside as long as you can make your process specific enough in what you're evaluating. Amazing. And that's also a callback to how we kind of closed out the interview, right? We were talking about risk and kind of leaning into risk. Yes, that's exactly the same. It's exactly the same as that part of the interview. Yes, that like the the true downside is like you have a hard conversation with somebody. Right. But if they're unhappy too, it's actually not that hard. I think that's one of the things that people don't realize. Like it feels really scary if you've never helped someone leave before. Um, but the reality is usually people are unhappy. And if they can't grow enough, um, because like the way that they want to work or the things that they need are different than what the company needs, it's actually better for their career to help them move on faster. But it just sounds scary and intimidating if you haven't done it before. Wise words from Chris Savage and Brent Grinna. Damn. Well, thanks, Sylvie. <laughs> I appreciate the vote of confidence there. 
<laughs> Is that it? Should we do the part of the Should show we do the part? where we um, tell people yeah. about Let's like do what that to part. do? Okay. Yeah. So um, if you're still listening, wow, thanks. Um, excited that you're here. Took a big risk. Yeah. Took a big risk, but took a big paid risk. Off. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we'd love your feedback. Please rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. Um, if you want more to give us more specific feedback, you want to send us voice memos that might make it on air, please email us at ttlpod at wistia.com. And of course, we have a ton of other content coming out of Wistia Studios. So go to wistia.com to see content from a better workplace, to see show business. Um, we have some new really sick stuff that's coming out. Um, it's not it's just all sick. Be available. It's really sick. Thanks for pointing that out, that I didn't need to really. I really, really appreciate it. Um, that's it, everyone. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey... Rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.